Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. A consequence of the pandemic is, you know, depending on the data that you read, 15 to 18% of the restaurants in America are gone because of the pandemic. We've talked to a lot of hospitality leaders about how they've responded to the challenging times that restaurants are coming through. The ones who are winning are the ones who paid attention to efficiency and value for the customer. I think customers are getting smarter and more savvy about their choices with digital too. People know that when they order from a DSP, they're paying a significant premium on that price. And if a brand offers them a better path and a better solution through their own channels, they're starting to find that path back to the brand. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. At a time when everybody is paying more for a lot less and services on the decline, today's guest is leaning in on value and it's paying off in spades. We're sitting down with Bob Wright, who has been president and CEO of Potbelly Corporation since July of 2020. The stock trades under the symbol PBPB. Bob has over 30 years of experience in the restaurant industry, most recently serving as executive vice president and COO of the Wendy's Companies, where he ran operations for over 6,000 company and franchise restaurants located throughout the U.S. and Canada. He has a strong track record of business transformation throughout his career, where he has leveraged brand strengths to revitalize top-line sales and profit growth through system-wide service standardization and quality initiatives. In addition to Wendy's, Bob has served in leadership roles with other restaurant brands, including Charlie's Philly Steaks, Checkers Drive-In Restaurants, and Domino's Pizza. Let's enter the arena with Bob Wright. You know, it's interesting. I've loved this brand for 20 years as a consumer. Uh, I always thought Potbelly had a, a special place in the fast casual space. I watched what it was doing with its growth, its expansion. The food products was appealing to me and my family and others that I knew. And so when I left Wendy's, I had a desire at the time anyway to build a multi-brand, multi-state franchise company. After all these years, I was going to jump to the other side and as a franchisee. The pandemic uh, came along and every deal went sideways one way or the other. Yep. Part of that season was I also endeavored to uh, see if I could find some board positions where I could support companies with my experience. And Potbelly was my first target. Wow. Now, I was unsuccessful, honestly, with the networking and, and such, especially in that time. But then I received some outreach from one of our board members who I, I knew from my Wendy's days. And he said, you know, how, how familiar are you with the brand? I said, it's interesting you ask. I've put yeah. a lot of thought into this brand. And, 
So a few months later, I was having that same conversation with the rest of the board, and uh, there was some activism going on at the same time, a little bit of board turnover in the midst of those conversations, and the previous CEO uh, exited the system, and and, uh, this turned into more than a board seat, which I've I've loved ever since. Yeah, and here you are. Um, What's the history of Potbelly, just for listeners who might not be familiar with it? Oh, it's such a great history. Uh, Potbelly started in 1977 in an antique shop in Chicago on Lincoln Avenue. Peter Hastings and his wife owned the antique shop, and they thought they could expand their their business by starting to sell sandwiches. Peter tells a great story. He went out and bought enough food to make five sandwiches his first day, bread and the meats that he needed and so on. And at the end of the day, he still had enough food to make five sandwiches. Uh, (laughs) Amazing. But he built it from there. It was a single unit. Eventually, the sandwich shop took over the antique shop, although it still had a lot of the antiques. That's that's where our decor theme comes from, is the roots in that antique shop. But for 20 years, it was a single location company. Brian Kyle, the gentleman we, we call our founder, purchased that from Peter and Bryant, under his leadership, grew the brand to over 200 units before uh, turning it over to more professional management team. That and those are Bryant's words. And right before the company went public back in 2013. Yeah, it's it's an amazing history, and you're kind of playing in a space that has a lot of competition. What differentiates Potbelly in your mind? Yeah, it's a great point. Some of that is the roots that I just shared with you. Like it's always been about high quality food, toasted sandwiches, handmade, fresh when you ordered them. There's a reason those lines were out the door even back when there was one shop. The decor, the atmosphere, the overall feel when you go in the shops, the music and so on, all, all been a big part of it. But look, the summary of that is really we are a fast casual restaurant yeah. um, with a sandwich based menu. And we do that in a sea of sub shops. Yep. So, you know, just because our sandwiches are the same shape and size as many other brands that sell subs, we're not a sub shop. We're a sandwich restaurant. And, you know, we make our food fresh when you come in. We've got great salads. We have the best cookies you can get in America and hand dipped ice cream shakes and uh, soups that go with those. And so it's a it's a meal occasion that fits that fast casual consumer when they're considering a, a higher end lunch, higher quality lunch than yep. or dinner, then we tend to fit the bill really well. Yeah. And uh, I think you pivoted the menu not that long ago. Maybe talk about that. Why was that the right move at that time? Remember, I came on board in July of 2020. So we were right in the throes of the early stages of the pandemic. And the sales had already crashed because of the pandemic when I got here. We were down 60%. Yeah. Weren't making money. Sixty percent's like a victory. <laughs> like at that time, you know? yeah, yeah, it's still well into uh, losses, both profit and yeah. cash losses. So it was a tough time. But again, the, some of the thoughts I had about the brand, I tried to either prove or disprove those with what research we could get our hands on. We couldn't afford to do any new research, but there was some recent research that was yep. on the shelf. And it was very clear that we had a value problem with our consumer. And at the root of that value problem was the menu itself. And so the solution that we put in place was to re-engineer the menu itself because there was no way to promote our way out of this value challenge. The best thing to do was to just fix it. So we made our original sandwiches bigger. We made our big sandwiches bigger. We put more meat and more cheese in both of those sandwiches. So they even, even proportionally, there are meatier, cheesier, and larger sandwiches. We did raise the price on them, but we didn't raise the price as much as we increased the food costs. So we literally gave more value to the consumer for the dollar. 
to offset that, we, we've made another very important move, which was the introduction of our skinny size sandwiches. So that's when we went from a two size product to a three size product. And the skinny gave us, first of all, a lower entry point. So for a customer that's a little more price point conscious or for a customer that's a little more calorie conscious, there was a solution there for them that made sense on both fronts. That's also the sandwich that is now part of the pick your pair options that you have. So that sandwich with a salad or that sandwich with a cup of soup is right straight off the menu with pick your pair. So we introduced value in a number of ways and a number of fronts. And I would say that both the quality enhancements and the value enhancements were critical. It turns out to be foundational when yeah. we hit the high inflation periods in 2021 yeah. uh, in 2022 because we'd reset the base, got very high marks. We did get quite a bit of check lift because the majority of customers still stayed with the originals and the bigs, but they were thrilled. You know, yeah. for 75 cents more, they got a significantly better sandwich. Yeah. And uh, for those that were a little more price conscious, they had an opportunity to enter in a different way. Um, yeah. Still serves us well. Well, listen, you're growing, and I know that's a big priority for you. You announced uh, a number of deals last year. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that and how do they kind of fit into your whole growth scheme going forward. At the end of 2020 is when we first announced our, our current five-pillar strategy. It still serves us really well. And the fifth pillar of that strategy is franchise-focused development. It was my belief, and it was our management team board was aligned to it as well, that the best way to grow and to accelerate growth was through franchising. Look, we'd, we'd had our turn at company development, and we left a lot of markets underpenetrated, yep. some significantly underpenetrated with a lot of white space in between. And it's part of my experience set, but it's also proven to be a fabulous way to grow a brand. One of the things that we don't often talk about that was a a consequence of the pandemic is, you know, depending on the data that you read, 15 to 18% of the restaurants in America are gone because of the pandemic. The consumption patterns for consumers have been relatively stable since the 40s, about 5% of disposable income spent on meals outside the home. So there was a generational reset in the supply-demand curve in the restaurant space. So speed to growth is also important. And I know that franchising is certainly a lot faster. And so if we're going to take advantage of that market share that's available to us, we want to do it with unit growth development at the unit level with same-store sales and traffic-driven sales growth and with accelerated unit development. So we also knew that we had some blemishes as a company and as a brand. Our financial model at the unit level wasn't wasn't the most attractive, although I think we saw what it could be. Yeah. So we decided to catalyze that a little bit and put out there that we would be willing to refranchise a few locations if it went hand-in-hand with the right development agreement. Bryant's is an example of that. He bought some company units from us on the Maryland side of the river in the Washington, D.C. DMA a market he's very familiar with personally because it was the second market he went into. He spent half of his childhood in that market. But it came attendant with it, you know, a significant development commitment. We signed another big one that we announced. You, we don't announce every single deal yeah. um, individually, but the Royal Restaurant Group was another one. Yep, they bought saw that. four units in Columbus, Ohio. They're going to build 17 more in Columbus and build 19 in Florida. Uh, this is a group that operated hundreds of Wendy's as well as a couple of other brands. And that the principals of that group uh, liquidated their company. And these three gentlemen wanted to continue to work together. They had the equity and they, they started yeah. again. So yeah. uh, those are good examples of that. As of yesterday morning, we announced we sold 192 commitments for new unit development. And we'll grow this year by about a 10% unit count growth rate. How many of the stores are you 
like refranchising because I know sometimes as a public company, it can be like a little awkward yeah. to kind of make this shift as a public company where the, you know, your top line might look like it's moderating, but you're actually moving to an asset light model, which helps the bottom line. You're so right. You know, from my experience at Wendy's, we did a lot of that. I was there when we sold those 1100 company units and yeah. did that massive refranchising effort. Uh, it's different here. Uh, that's the easiest part of the answer because the levers that you have to pull and the advantages that come with a significant refranchising effort aren't, aren't those that are available to us. It was always and it still is all about growth. The long-term end point would be about 85% franchise and about 15% company. At 2,000 units, which is our long-term target that we've announced and continue to, to stick to, uh, that would have us at about 300 company units. So we wouldn't sell that many more. And I don't believe that we need to. We, we really believed it was necessary to get things started. And like I say, to catalyze that growth, we sold 33 company units into the franchise system last year. We will not do that many this year. And we always said that we were willing to let go of 100, uh, which would get us to about 300. But we're in no position to push that beyond a timeline that makes sense. Uh, and we, one of the points that you mentioned is a part of the reason why. We, yeah. we like to see the company continue to grow revenue year over year, grow our profitability year over year. And the foundation of those two components of our economic health as a, a public company are still rooted primarily in our company portfolio. Now, there'll be a time as that franchise growth accelerates and all the royalties that flow in from there and the, the inter- initial franchise fees that come in, they'll, they'll overwhelm a little bit of refranchising along yeah. the way. Yeah. Well, listen, things are clicking. Your team is doing an amazing job. I know on top of a, a solid third quarter, you pre-announced fourth quarter comp growth over 5% and driven by traffic growth, which is great, not price. And you mentioned you updated the new franchise unit commitment, and you must be feeling pretty good about the business, like heading into 2024. Yeah, we're feeling very good about it. And I would say, I think it's still early innings. Uh, When you look at the five pillar strategy, the first four of those pillars are significant advantages to the customer, and that's where we win. But the most important elements that we we discuss publicly often are the strategic initiatives that underpin those five pillars. You, You asked me about one of them, the new menu was a direct relation to our first pillar, which is great food and great value. Uh, the work that we've done on our operating systems uh, to increase throughput and improve customer experience numbers, the Potbelly Digital Kitchen, it's a combination of technology investment and, and better experiences for the customer. We've really fundamentally changed the uh, engagement we have with our customers when, with our digital initiatives, digital advertising with placed media. Now we have video content that we're placing. We're, we're investing more in our marketing than we have in years. Yeah. And we're expanding margins at the same time. And then with our Perks Loyalty Program, which is really the the engine for traffic growth for us, it just continues to serve us really well. We announced in Q3 that we grew year over year Perks member acquisition by 60%. Um, yeah, that's and crazy. The other thing is we keep approaching this 40% mark for a total digital business. Those are orders that are originated in the digital world. That number was less than 10 back before the pandemic. And another exciting milestone in Q3, it was the first quarter that the majority of that digital business came through our channels. Yeah. So we're making our channels and our Perks Loyalty Program more and more attractive, and we're less and less reliant on the DSPs, the third-party delivery providers, for the digital sourcing of our business. And I think customers are are getting smarter and more savvy about their choices with digital, too. You know, people know that when they order from a DSP, they're paying a significant premium on that price. 
And if a brand offers them a better path and a better solution through their own channels, they're starting to find that path back to the brand. Potbelly's restaurant level economics are definitely moving in the right direction, but they have some important goals for their average unit volumes in 2024 as well. Bob explained their challenges and where they're setting their sights for the upcoming year. We pre-released as much as we were comfortable with, but uh, we, we have had some very straightforward challenges. Wait a minute, Bob, I thought your, your AUV target for 2024 was 1.3, and it looks like from your release that you're at 1.3 in 2023. So what's the, what's the next new number? We haven't announced it yet, but obviously there'll be growth. And when I said that about early innings, I think the things that we see that have been driving our growth, both in same-store sales, margin expansion, and unit development, we continue to see a lot more gas in the tank in those same areas. So, you know, we're not going to make news today, but you should certainly expect that we continue to talk about growth in all three of those areas. We did say in margins that 2024 would be our 16% year. We haven't changed or adjusted that guidance at all. So we need to update the top line. We need to start talking more clearly about unit growth beyond 2024 because we committed to 10% growth in 2024 as well. Bob, you mentioned store-level margins, which I thought was so impressive as I kind of learned more about the company. In Q3, your margins were up 400 basis points, I think, sales leverage, operating efficiencies. What are you doing at the store level? What is the execution that's going into that? Because it's so impressive. Well, thank you. Look, again, every one of my answers should include a name of somebody on my team. And yeah. our, our COO, Adam Noyes, is, is really outstanding at, at running shop-level P&Ls um, and the systems and processes that support that. So late in 2021, we were able to implement our labor guide that we still operate under. Now, we continue to adjust that. One thing, it gives us labor efficiency, but the other thing it gives us is proper staffing at the proper time, which is m- even more important because it unlocks sales and throughput. But the major drivers of our margin expansion and the same things will be the drivers next year are continued top line growth driven by traffic because that gives us leverage. It gives us leverage on all our fixed costs, at least the fixed part of labor. It gives us leverage on our occupancy costs, which are down and continuing to trend down, and the other operating expenses that we benefit from. In the short term, you usually see a little more leverage on price. But in the long term, it's terribly unhealthy to lean too much on that. And we've been very open about the desire to to only price for the offset of inflation that's hitting our food, paper, and labor. We want to earn the rest of that margin expansion because it protects our value equation that we had to reset with the customer. So, yes, top-line sales are going to continue to help us leverage our margin expansion. We do see more efficiency in the labor line as we've gotten sharper with that guide that I told you about. Yep. Uh, throughput initiatives like our Potbelly Digital Kitchen provide additional throughput during peak times, which, again, unlocks additional labor efficiency. And because it makes the back line so much more efficient, we, we can take seven hours out of the labor guide every week when we put that in place. And so that brings our efficiency up. It's one of those wonderful solutions because it helps with labor efficiency, drives margin expansion, it improves the quality of the food, it improves the accuracy of the food orders, and it improves our order ready on time. So our food for our digital orders is not ready too soon or too late. Makes sense why the quality scores go up. If you go into one of our shops where we have PDK installed and you even mention to the manager how it's going, they say, look, if you take it out, I'm leaving. Yeah. It's a massive difference maker to automate all of that order processing on the back line. Yeah, it's so cool. Talk about the menu a little bit. I know you talked about the pivot on the menu, but right now, what are some of the best sellers? 
Look, Iraq is still our number one seller. Italian is up there, uh, our number one protein because of the turkey sandwich and the avo turkey. Uh, and of course, turkey's on the wreck too. So it's a great protein for us. What's really cool about uh, some of what we've been doing is if you go into our app and only our app, it's not online. Uh, it is in the POS if you happen to go in the shop and order one, but our underground menu. Potbelly for years, way back in the day, in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s when Bryant was running the, the company, there were a lot of underground menu items that people kind of hacked, almost like, like people do with coffee today. Yeah. And uh, the, first of all, the list was way too long, and some of those were unbelievably discreet menu items. So we've brought back the underground menu in the digital world. We've got three unique meatball sandwiches. The Clubby is back on there. The Lucky Seven, which is actually the combination of all the meats that go on the Rec and the Italian. We just introduced the Rec salad into the underground menu. And what's so fun to watch is the introduction of any of those items tend to be in our top two or three menu item searches right after we introduce it. And it's only available in one place. We've done a lot of work uh, in the innovation world in the last 12 to 18 months, mostly in LTOs, limited time offer products a quality elevating LTO. So things like our Cubano sandwich uh, was a product that we've had back twice in the last couple of years. Cookies have proven to be a tremendous field of, of innovation and development for us. And people love cookies. People love them. And they love the variety. And we see our cookie incident spike every time we roll out a new uh, limited time cookie. We did the uh, a red velvet cookie around Valentine's Day the last two years. Of course, we tell everybody about it. We tell you if you're a Perks member, you can get one for free. So th those are good. And our limited time offer shakes like the cold brew shake, uh, the eggnog shake at the holiday season is a huge hit. And those things can really help. Look, though, I don't want to mislead you. There's not big equipment investments because we're going to add some massive yeah. line to the menu. I would tell you one of the best things we can do is make the menu that we have really, really well every time a customer comes in. Nothing beats a rec sandwich made right in the oven that's set right, that, yep. you know, that, that gets the right heat. Our chicken salad's made fresh every day. It's one I've been on a chicken salad kick lately. Yeah. Add hot peppers to it. It's delicious. Awesome. I'd love to hear about the team that you surround yourself with and maybe the work culture of Potbelly. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, we are a team that has uh, something very important in common. All of us chose to be here, and we chose to be here in large part because of the potential that we believe was untapped at this brand. And so there's always a high level of enthusiasm and engagement and support for the notion of, of what can be. We're not foolishly optimistic, but we do believe that there's a lot more that we can do with Potbelly, and that's why the team joined. We enjoy working together. Uh, we certainly enjoy the challenges. We've instituted some, uh, what I would say are core competencies that, that needed strengthening as a team. Test and learn is one of those. Uh, financial acumen and discipline around investments and return on investments. We filter out our strategic initiatives that underpin that strategy, like I talked about, based on those that are going to be the lowest investment with the highest returns. We've done that not only at the senior team, but at the vice president level and the director level. It's still a relatively small core of people that are the leaders in the organization at the director level and up. And we spend time with them on their personal development and certainly on their professional development. But this is a team that has learned how to win. We were all standing on a burning platform together in 2020. Yeah. And it wasn't a turnaround at that time. It was survival. Many of us came on board in the midst of that and said, oh, we absolutely think we can survive. Yeah. Then we get to turn around. Um, and we set big goals for ourselves every year. And we signed up for those goals with the board and with the shareholders. But 
they've learned that even in months where it looks like we may be a little bit off track to fight to get back on track and learn how to win. And we're going into our third year of a team that realizes this is how a great performing company, a high performing team can deliver. So they're having a blast yeah, and we love it. We've hired people from the restaurant space that love what they do, that are very good at it and are comfortable with the role clarity that we've created with the organizational structure that we put in place. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. There's a direct correlation between things going up and to the right and fun, right? It's fun. It's fun to win every day and you're certainly executing. Um, You mentioned it very briefly, but I thought we would spend just a bit of time on what you see as the potential for the system. You talk about the number of units that you have today, mm-hmm. what it could be. I'd love to uh, get your thoughts on that as well as maybe some of the geographies that you think are really well suited for the brand in the shorter term. Yeah, the one, the big one I think is that, you know, kind of you build the model from the future back and the biggest one you need to kind of understand is what's our true vision for unit count. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's going to extrapolate some level of same store sales growth every year to get there. But in the next eight to 10 years, we absolutely believe this is a 2000 unit brand. Yeah. Absolutely believe it. 17... Hundred of those, if you're doing my 85% math, they're going to be franchise owned, and uh, you know, 300 or so will be company owned. That's not a perfect uh, science, but we're, we're yeah. basically growing through all franchise growth. And the reason that we've spent the first couple of years focused so much on top line growth and margin expansion is you're not going to successfully franchise a brand if, if franchisees don't trust that you are focused on those two elements because the the four wall economics is what uh, certainly what keeps their head in the game. Yep. Um, and, uh, and then all the while building the brand, building the team, where would we do that? That number is a lower 48 number. So it's here in the U S uh, we haven't talked about going beyond that because we think we've got a lot of runway to focus and, and keep our team focused. Pl- plenty of work to keep you busy, right? That's right. And I think that's dangerous to get, uh, get too broad with your strategy when there's so much work to be done on, yeah. on the near term and even the midterm. We are benefiting from the growth strategy that occurred after the company went public. I wouldn't say it was successful, but it is for us today because we've got a nationwide brand presence with nationwide brand appeal. It's not as if we do very poorly on the West Coast and do excellent in Chicago. This brand does well wherever we are. So we've proven we've got travel, we've got uh, portability of the brand, and we're not a 430-unit regional brand that's trying to break out of that. One of the big barriers for franchise expansion, typically for food companies, do you have distribution established in certain parts of the country? But for California, we've pretty much got distribution today in all of the lower 48. Yeah. So with that in mind, where are the opportunities to penetrate? We think we should be filling out the markets where we already have a great presence, brand strength, great presence in Texas and Virginia and even in Illinois and throughout the Midwest, there's a lot of very strong markets that can be further penetrated. We talked a lot about our sales in, in Florida, but in general, the Southeast is very poorly penetrated. In some cases, not at all. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a single deal or shop in Atlanta yet. So uh, from a franchise sales perspective, we're putting most of our recruiting efforts in, in areas like that. But we're able to take the incoming, as I said, we don't announce every single deal, but we've had four unit deals in little more remote parts of the country where... That's where the franchisee is. They do business there. They've done development there. They've already got three or four other businesses and they want to add pot belly. We love signing those deals because those people execute and their name is on the brand and everybody in town knows who they are. So they, they make great franchisees. For sure. Do you have a personal philosophy on leadership and how you kind of lead the company, Bob? 
We are collaborative, but I'm decisive. And I think that's really important. And I've, I've worked as a leader that way, and I've certainly worked for leaders that are that way. I think both are just as critical as a bit of a, bit of a balance. My leadership style organizationally, if you look at our org structure, and uh, I mentioned the word or phrase role clarity a moment ago, I think it's terribly important that that is in place and that there's not any confusion about who's doing what. I'm not a terribly directive person. There was a time back in my early operator days where I was, I was good at it. But I think it's important that you hire great leaders and you get out of their way. The power of, of the people in our organization is in those people. We're not interchangeable parts. There's, there's a unique gift and talent to every person that, that works for this company and works for any company. And I think if we can create clear boundaries, that's the role clarity. Within those boundaries, our people have freedom to really shine. And, yeah. uh, and they do. Um, I get surprised on a regular basis, pleasantly surprised with, with the great work that people on my team are doing well above and beyond what I could have thought to have, have directed them to. So I think we have to challenge that environment and then we have to celebrate like crazy when, when people win. But at this level, you, you really need to make sure the vision's clear, the focus is there so we don't get distracted. And then we create that team environment where everybody knows they can win. Potbelly's got a great concept that's held very strong over the years. Their instinct to increase value and invest in efficiency has paid off, and they're moving to an asset light model where margins and profitability are ramping up. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon to be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Bob Wright for joining us today. His decades of experience in the fast casual space have proven to be a huge asset to Potbelly during a really challenging time. And I'm looking forward to see them continue to grow. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.